Hello, and welcome to this Soulless Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit soullesschurch.com. I want to start today with what we're going to eventually focus on, but just so you can write down as like a title of the sermon today. As we look at the book of Amos, we'll come back to this, but you could just kind of get a head start here and write down this, this summary or this message of the book of famous Amos, okay? The message is the wandering nature of God's chosen people. The wandering nature of God's chosen people. We've looked at Hosea, the book of Hosea. Remember that a couple weeks ago? That showed us the radical nature of God's pursuing love. Last week we were in the book of Joel, talking about locusts and stuff. And in the book of Joel, we saw the powerful nature of God's restoring grace in our lives. And here when we get to the book of Amos, we're focusing today on the wandering nature of God's chosen people. That's us. And we'll we'll, we'll get into that today. So uh, let's pray and then we'll uh, get into what we have. Lord, thanks for another Sunday to be in your presence, to push reset a little bit by centering our hearts upon you, by coming back to center, by coming back to that place of of focus, knowing who you are. Maybe God, just being reminded of who you are so that we cannot waste anything or any moment in our lives, God, we have been saved by you to live for you. And so as we dive into your word today, Lord, our desire, our heart's desire is to hear from you. Not just to hear some jokes or some of Andrew and some of his insights. And God, I'm, I'm not here to impress. I'm not here to sound smart. God, we're only here. Because you are the living God, and you've called us your children, and you want to speak to us. So God, let me not get in the way of that. And may we just invite your Holy Spirit here. Uh, I ask you to speak, God. I ask for you to bring clarity where I may be foggy. I ask for you to bring insight. We ask for you to speak to us. We commit this time to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well. The book of Amos, here we are. We got about nine chapters long, I think that's right, nine chapters long in this incredible book, and there's a lot going on. I want to give you a quick little uh, overview of what's going on in the book of Amos so that you can show off your friends, uh, show off to your friends at lunch a little bit, but really just to uh, be, like me, so in love uh, with a pretty understudied and overlooked book in the Bible, like all the minor prophets. The book of Amos, as I've been studying this book especially, I don't know, I got like a bigger heart for this book almost more than any of the others so far. Not that they're lesser, but I just have loved studying the book of Amos. Uh, here's what we've been doing every week. We've been starting with what we call our prophet profile, our prophet profile. And this gives us our general overview of what we're studying. Uh, This is kind of our cheat sheet to know what the book of Amos is all about by asking four fundamental questions. What's the title of the book or who's the author? What's the territory that the prophet is prophesying in and speaking in? Where are they? Who are they? Where are they? When are they? What's the time frame? What's going on? And we can't always target that with a BC date. Uh, Some we can be a little more accurate, but just generally, what's the time frame? Where's it at on the timeline? And then lastly, what was the prophet's task? We know that every single prophet had one singular task, and that was to proclaim God's word to God's people. That was their job, but there were unique tasks involved in that. Refer back to the book of Hosea if you need an example, okay? But in this case, uh, with Amos, we have these four questions answered for us with, with a little bit of clarity. Let's start here. Who is the author of the book of Amos? And I hope you're turned in your Bible to Amos chapter 1. Um, this is uh, really going to be a time for us to actively engage in God's word, not just passively listen to something I'm saying. But let's have our eyes on the scriptures together. Uh, we're going to be flipping a bit through it. And right away in Amos chapter 1, verse 1, you get the introduction telling us that this book, verse 1, are the words of Amos. The words of Amos. Now, what do we know about Amos? Let's start with his name. His name means burden bearer. 
which is such an appropriate name for Amos. There's, a, there's actually a point in this book where Amos says, uh, speaking on behalf of God, that God's people are weighing him down like a carton of sheaves. God's like, it's a burden, like you're burdening me is what God says. And isn't that interesting that God, he had a burden and he felt, this is usually how it goes, that Amos was someone that could handle and take upon his own life God's burden. And so Amos, man, may we all be burden bearers, amen? May we be those that God deems available and, and uh, may he call us to be able to bear the things that's on his heart. And so Amos was that burden bearer. Man, we get some really cool insight to this guy that I think is really inspiring that's different than a lot of the other books that we've studied so far. Like Joel, we're like, we know his name. It's Joel, you know. Um, Hosea, we know a little bit too much information about that dude's life. Um, but when you get to Amos, it's really cool the kind of info that we have here. Look what it says. It says in Amos 1.1, the words of Amos, it tells us this, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa. You ever been there? Tekoa? Great place. Great little town. Okay. Tekoa. It's a, a town in, in, in Judea, small little Judean town, about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. And Amos, that's his home in Tekoa. One of the most, I think, insightful things about this guy, this prophet, this man of God, was that he was just a guy. Just a guy. Like Steve next door, a guy that Moses lawn at the same time as you, as you and you wave. Like Barbara the barista, whoever else, okay, we got, you know. Or the manatee, isn't that a thing? All right. But, you know, you, there's, there's, there's these sort of like everyday ordinary people that we pass by. Amos is one of those guys. He's just a guy. He, he was one of the sheep breeders of Tekoa. We're not talking about this like powerful minister that's come out of the seminary and he's, he's kind of in the public light. He's just a guy, just a dude. In fact, Amos 7.14 gives us some more information. Uh, there's this interesting passage you get to in chapter 7 where Amos is like dueling, going toe-to-toe, the tale of the take here, with this other false prophet, Amaziah. And, and, and Amos is kind of describing himself and his ministry and his life. And here's what he says about himself. He says, I was no prophet. I was, I was no prophet. My dad wasn't a prophet either. I'm not like third generation preacher, second generation prophet, nor was I the son of prophet. He says, but I was a sheep breeder and a tender of good old sycamore fruit. Gotta love the sycamore fruit. Delicious. It says, then the Lord took me as I followed the flock and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. What an inspiring calling. An inspiring calling because Here's Amos, who just lives in the monotony of life, working his nine to five. Doing what is put before him, faithfully tending the flock. And God looks upon that faithfulness that's in obscurity, and he says, perfect. Perfect. I'm going to use you. You're not the son of a prophet. You yourself aren't a prophet, but I'm going to call you to speak to my people. Now, I think the reason why this is so inspiring is because this goes against all of our own natural assumptions about the kind of people that God uses. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, God uses those kinds of people. Now, I know God uses everyone, but God really uses those kinds of people. You know, the kind of people that go through the schools of ministry, the kind of people that are, are multi-generation from a Christian family. I know God will use me, but he can't really use me. You know, I'm, just, I'm a first-generation Christian. You know, I don't have this great legacy of faith in my family. Or, I, listen, I don't like speaking to people, or I have no experience speaking with people. And Amos is a great reminder that we don't have any excuses before God to say, God, you can't use me. What you see, not just in the life of Amos, but you see it all throughout the scripture, is this recurring principle. Listen, God loves to do extraordinary things with ordinary people. Just ordinary people, like tax collectors and religious zealots and religious terrorists like Paul, right? God takes the people that we would discard as unworthy and unusable, and he says, perfect, a vessel to display my glory through. Wouldn't it be great if we could all be a little bit more like Paul, who said, man, I, I know I'm weak, but it's when I'm weak that I'm strong. 
I don't have what it takes most of the time to be used by God, but I have a God who is stronger than any weakness I have in my life and my use to him. Listen to this. It's not based on my capability. It's based on my availability. It's based on God. How much of me do you have? It's amazing what God will do, will do and can do with a life that, listen, you might not have it all together. Welcome to the club. But you just say, God, here am I. Use me. God uses sheep readers. God uses baristas, right? God uses students. God is, and you see this especially with the 12 disciples, God is in the business of doing extraordinary things through ordinary people who are just willing to be vessels of his word. Like, that's really what it is, you know? Like, you're in God's word, and God says, okay, now I want to use you to speak that word. I mean, I, I would love to see Solus continue to grow as a, as a community that is truly centered on God's word, not because we hear Andrew preach from the Bible on Sunday. But you know what it would really mean for us to be the kind of people that are like a Bible, scripture, rooted people? It means we're sharing God's word with each other, you know? Like, what is God speaking to you? Share that. Just the other day, I was, I was uh, texting with one of, like, the four landlords I have. And I was going back and forth. And I'm texting him, and I get that. You ever get that nudge where it's like, there's a scripture that matches what he's going through? Not a believer. And I just felt like I need to share that with him. And then I play that, like, uh, that, like debate game with God where I start acting like it's not God. I'm like, that's just me, right? <laughs> that's just my, you know, because God wouldn't want me to share a, a Bible verse with someone. So that must be me, you know? Like I start kind of like going through that. And, and man, just, just going, okay, but like I'm just a sower, right? Like I'm just going to sow the seeds. And I just said, hey, man, this is just something that God's been, been showing me. Here's a really great verse. And the guy responded, and he was like, well, thank, and it opened up this new door of relationship and opportunity. So what I'm trying to say is not that, listen, you guys need to be more like me because I'm awesome and I know the Bible. No, I'm saying we, we all need to be more like Amos. Amos was just a dude who was available for God to speak through. He was just available to, for, for God to use. And so I love that about Amos. So let's go back to Amos 1. You guys are still there. We're, we're here still at the prophet profile. You know what's really cool is even the way Amos tells you about himself, he says that I was a sheep breeder. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? And it's funny because it's the same um, uh, vocation as a shepherd, but many scholars believe that Amos was being intentional to say, I don't have a pastoral ministry background. So he used a different word. You know? He's like, instead of being a barista, you're like, I'm a coffee maker. Okay? He's like, I'm a sheep breeder. Not, I don't have a, you know, training in the school of the prophets with the shepherds. So I just think that's, I don't know, interesting. Um, he's also a sycamore uh, fruit farmer. That's literal. He really is. Like, I mean, I've never had it before, but he does that too. So next point, okay? The title. So this is who, who's the author of this book. This is who God calls, an ordinary guy like you and me. Now, his territory, this is significant. It tells us that Amos, uh, it says, he was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa. Look back at verse 1, and this is really cool. It was the word which he saw concerning Israel. Now, I don't really have any great insight to that. Maybe you do, but I just think that's kind of cool. It's the word which he saw. I love that. Because usually it's like the word that you hear you know, most of the time. But he saw maybe this vision. He saw. You ever actually had that? I've kind of had that where it's like, I see what God's saying, right? And that's what Amos did. He had this insight to what God was saying. He was a prophet. And it was in the days concerning, and his word rather, look, what it, look at this. It was what he saw concerning Israel. This is specifically the northern kingdom. In the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, the southern kingdom. In the days of Jeroboam, you're going to need to know who this guy is. The son of Joash, king of Israel. And uh, that, so anyway, so we'll stop there for a second. It also tells us that it was two years before the earthquake. We literally know nothing about this earthquake. But just in case you're wondering, the book of Amos was written two years before the earthquake. Okay? Which one? The one. Okay? So anyway. We don't know. Okay, so Amos, here's what we do know. He's prophesying to the northern kingdom of Israel. It tells us there it's specifically a message. Now, we're going to see it's a message for many nations. It's a message for Judah, the southern kingdom. At this point, remember, it's been about 200 years that the kingdom of Israel has divided. The people of God had divided into two nations, the northern kingdom. You got 10 tribes up there and the southern kingdom called Judah. The northern kingdom, Israel. The southern kingdom is Judah. Um, God, by the way, promised and, and, and spoke through the prophet Ezekiel that there would be a day where those two nations, those branches, would come back together again. 
Do you guys know that that has happened within the past hundred years? 1948, Israel became a nation again. That's just awesome. The Bible's true, okay? Now, the northern kingdom at this time is under the reign and the rule of King Jeroboam II. King Jeroboam II. Not a stellar guy. Um, As Amos is going to preach to him, notice I put up there, he's going to preach at Bethel, um, which is a, a town there in the northern kingdom where Jeroboam has set up a whole new worship system and religious system around pagan idols. And so that's specific, that's like the heart of where uh, Amos is speaking to. What we're going to see is Amos has this big target. And there's a lot of people on the target. It's like, I don't ever want to be on God's target. You know what I'm saying? Like, God, please. I'm prone to be targeted by you because I am broken. But show me mercy, right? Okay, well, that, Amos had a target, man, and all sorts of nations. You could say that the very bullseye of the target, okay, was this town of Bethel, all right? And we're going to get into that a little bit more. What's going on? Let's get into that. Jeroboam, what's going on? Uh, The time frame of this book was written around 793 to 739 B.C. And at this time, notice this sentence, it's a time in Israel's history under King Jeroboam II, two years before an earthquake, really important, okay, when great political and material prosperity, notice this, has been coupled with great spiritual and moral poverty. You have prosperity and you have Poverty happening all at the same time. First of all, you have prosperity, both materially and politically. There's, there's uh, no other time in Israel's history where the political peace with surrounding nations and the, and, the, and the expanding territory of Israel's kingdom is greater. It is reaching farther. The kingdom is soaring higher than ever before. So from like a political sense, I said a couple weeks ago, like many of us would probably vote for this guy. Like, he's bringing great prosperity and blessing in a material sense, in a political sense, to the land. A lot of peace, not a lot of division. Um, He's also bringing great financial and material prosperity. I mean, Israel at this time is just absolutely crushing it. They are banking it on on the stage of world economy. They're absolutely killing it. So Israel at this time, great prosperity, yet at the same time, there's a lot of bad theologies that would say that these two could never exist, but I think most of the time, they, they, most often they do exist together. Not that they have to, but there are many cases where great earthly peace and material blessing can be coupled with moral and spiritual poverty, a decline in spiritual life, idolatry, oppressive injustice in the land, wicked immorality, religious hypocrisy. King Jeroboam II was not a good leader because though he managed to accomplish all the material goals, what does it profit a nation to gain the whole world and lose your soul? What does it profit anyone, Jesus said? And that's what Jeroboam II had managed to do, to lead the nation to be, you could say it this way, spiritually banking, or rather, sorry, materially banking, but spiritually tanking. Okay? Or you could say spiritually banking, or materially banking. I'm almost done. Dr. Seuss, check us out. Okay? Materially banking, but spiritually bankrupt. And that's really where the nation had found themselves. And not just like in a oopsie, we kind of fallen off, but like in a really wicked and messed up way. Israel has themselves at this point in history in a really bad way. Really far from God. Doing wicked things unjust things, oppressing the poor, trafficking children, even at this time, which is still a major crisis we know in our day and age. We should know that. And to make matters worse, you know, Amos chapter 2, verse 12, it tells us that it was at this time that things are just going great outside, but horribly on the inside from God's perspective. It was at this time that Amos 2, 12 tells us that the king made an order that no prophets were allowed to speak. By the way, we could all find ourselves there and spiritually. You ever been there? Like, come on, you've been there. Where you're like, I know I'm not doing right, and I don't want to hear about it. And, and that's where the nation was. The king made an order. Prophets aren't allowed to speak. Isn't that crazy? Like, because we know we're rebelling against God, and we know he's going to tell us to turn and repent. But that, listen, can I say, like, that is the place you don't want to be, right? 
It's one thing to rebel against God. It's a whole other thing to close off your ears entirely and to shut off every mouth that would try to call you back. That's why being a part of a community of faith where we all hold each other with grace and love accountable to our, our, our calling is really important. Okay, so I'm trying not to do too much preaching here. I'm sorry, all right? I'm sorry about that, okay? We'll try to do a little more teaching. Let's get through this, all right? Lastly, that leads us to the task of this incredible book. Amos is famous for... Last one, I promise, all right? He's famous for what he specifically does in the first two chapters, and it's an indictment that he brings with judgment. Uh, the task that Amos had in light of the, 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 the cultural moment that he was in, the decay, the spiritual bankruptcy, his task was, read this, to indict God's people and pronounce judgment upon them, here's the key, the key idea, alongside the pagan nations that are surrounding them. This is huge, a huge point. Amos chapter 1 and 2 contains eight indictments. Eight, you could say, guilty criminals are brought before the, the, the throne of God, the stand of God's justice and judgment. And the nations that God begins to list would be the nations that Israel would be like, yeah, those are our enemies. They killed our children. They, they took away our land. They oppressed us. They fought against us on that last Thursday. And so Amos begins to kind of indict these different nations. Look at verse 3. Thus says the Lord, and he uses the same phrase. Look at your Bibles, Amos 1.3. God uses the same phrase to describe each nation that he's calling before them in their guilt and in their sin. He says, for three transgressions, here he's speaking to Syria, of Damascus, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. God says that eight times to all eight people. He says, for three transgressions and for four. It's beautiful Hebrew poetry. It's not Amos going, you, you did three things wrong. Wait, no, no, you did four things wrong. That's not what he's doing. What he's saying is that you, your sin is stacked one upon the other. Your sinfulness, this is the human condition. It's not just like I did a thing wrong. It's like the thing I did wrong is on top of these other things that I've done wrong, and also I'm kind of wrong myself. It's just the nature of their transgression and their sin against the Lord. The idea is like it's overflowing. It's stacking up to a height that is worthy of God's righteous judgment, which is going to be a theme that we're going to constantly be exploring. It's really the minor prophets are like God judges sin. It's hard for our sort of cultural sensitivity to imagine a, a God of just, you know, when it's against me, right? Like, it's easy to be like, oh, yeah, of course, God, justice, bring it, you know? Judge them, of course, Lord. But then when we face the facts of how flawed, and Scripture uses words like how wicked we are before this holy God. Man, justice for ourselves, it's, it's, a, little, it's a little tougher to wrap our minds around uh, but that's the nature of, of Amos 1 and 2. God's just indicting these nations. He's like, man, sin upon sin. And you imagine as, as Amos is just going through the list of all these nations, and he's like, man, Damascus. And they're like, yeah, Damascus, take them down, you know? And he's just kind of going through and going, the people of Ammon. And we're, we're going to go to the Philistines. Oh, yeah, the Philistines. We got Goliath. Now my God's getting you. What's up, you know? And then it's like you get to Edom and all these nations, Moab. And you get through six of these nations, you imagine that Israel and their self-righteousness kind of hiding their unrighteousness behind them as a good little churchgoer, right? They're like, yeah, they're sinful, God. And then you get to chapter 2, verse 4. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four. I will not turn away its punishment. Then you get to verse 6. For three transgressions of Israel, chapter 2, verse 6, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Uh, the way that Paul says it is this way, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so here's Israel. And just because they have a religious tradition doesn't mean that there's not consequences for their sin. And, and so here's what's interesting. It's not just that God numbers and names Judah and Israel as the seventh and eighth nation that he's going to bring judgment towards. He doesn't just uh, indict them in this chronological random order. It's really interesting. If you look at a map 
of Israel at this time, you have the north and the south, the northern kingdom, southern kingdom. You look at the surrounding nations that Amos lists. This is really interesting in chapter 1 and even into chapter 2 with Moab. If you just follow all six of those nations, the way that Amos lists them, the Bible's really cool, by the way. Check this out. The way that Amos lists them is in a spiraling order on a map that leads to Israel right in the middle. The idea is God saying, hey, here's the target of my judgment, and Israel, you're right in the bullseye. Now, let me say this. Um, this is really tragic. Uh, th this is horribly sad that this is the case, that this is happening. And the reason is because of how far Israel, the people of God, are at this moment from who God's called them to be. Like, there's times where God uses Israel as a means of his judgment. But now, it, talk about, like, the shoes on the other foot. I mean, this is night and day from what God envisioned for his people. For God's people to be on the receiving end of his judgment, how far is that from Exodus chapter 19? Notice what God said to Israel in Exodus 19. And Moses went up to God on Mount Sinai, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, remember, this is post-delivered Egypt. Okay, let my people go. Oh, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh, baby, you let my people go, all right? That's post that happening. So God has delivered Israel. He's, he's called his people, delivered his people from death. He's called them to be a people gathered around him. And when God calls Moses up on the mountain, he gives him a vision for the house of Jacob, for Israel. He says, thus you shall say, shall say to the house of Jacob. Here's God's vision for his people, for the children of Israel. Verse 4, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Such loving language. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be, here's the vision, a special treasure to me above all people. For the earth is mine. And you shall be, look at this, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Look at this vision that God has for his people. He says, I'm delivering you. I'm rescuing you. Not because you did anything greater. You were awesome. That Deuteronomy says, I didn't set my affection on you because you were greater than the other nations. But I, I love you because I love you. And in my love, I have delivered you from death. And now I've brought you to the base of this mountain. And I'm forming you to be a people who are special treasure to me, the nation of Israel. And as a people who are special to me, you're being sent out as a kingdom of priests to the nations around you. The idea of that language of being a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, Isaiah expounds on this further, and he says you exist to be a light to the Gentiles. A priest, what is a priest? It's someone who mediates between people and God. We know that this is what was always God's will accomplished through Jesus, that it was going to be through the Jewish people. It's going to be through the Jewish people that God would bring all of the world to himself. Remember what he told Abraham? Through all the nations of the earth, or, or, or through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is the vision God had for his people, to exist as a light within the darkness to be a rescued people centered upon the Lord their God and to live in such a way that all the other nations look on and they say, I want what you have. I want, I want purpose and meaning and salvation like Israel has. And I'm going to, and you see this actually happen. You, you see pagan people who don't know the, the, the God of Israel repenting and saying, I want your God to be my God now. I like your God. He's the one true and living God. Now listen, this is why, hold on, this is why the book of Amos is so sad. How far is Israel from this vision? He said in the beginning, if you will not shut up your ears to my voice, they've done that. They don't want prophets to speak. We want nothing to do with God. We're doing our own thing. And here we are. We were once called to be a kingdom of priests to the Lord our God, a special treasure. We are now on the target and the bullseye of his judgment. Now, how does something like that happen? And the answer is this thing called human tendency. 
human tendency. This is the major message of the book of Amos. This message about human beings. This study in the proclivities of people. And there's this one thing that Israel and all of humanity has in common. It's like we have this natural tendency to move away from God's best. From the Garden of Eden to the nation of Israel, listen, to your and my life. This proclivity. And so that's the major message of this book. It really is all about this idea of the wandering nature. Not just of humanity, but specifically of God's chosen people. And let me say this, if you've been kind of catching on, this is not just true of Israel. This idea of being God's chosen people who wander. Uh, this is also true of the church. Okay, That great vision that we were describing for what God wanted to do with the nation of Israel is very closely connected to God's vision for us as the people of God today. Let me give you some scripture. Uh, Peter, you're going to notice very similar language here to what we just read in Exodus. Okay, Peter was a, an expert in the Torah. Look at this incredible unpacking of what God was saying through Moses to Israel. And now Peter is writing to the church, both Jew and Gentile alike. Okay, that's what the church is today. A, a community of, of faith, the people of God made up of every nation, right? We see that vision of the church in the book of Revelation, it's not just Jew, it's not Gentile, but we know that in Christ there is no longer Jew or Gentile. There's just faith in Christ. Okay, our race doesn't divide us, our genders don't divide us, our socioeconomic backgrounds don't divide us. How many of us know that as Christians, as the people of God, God himself defines us in a greater way than anything else could divide us, amen? So that's the truest thing about us as a people. Okay, and so just like Israel, look at this language for the church in 1 Peter 2. Peter says to the church, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Same phrase from Exodus 19. Now for the church. His own special people, remember that? Special treasure. That you and I may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Notice this. We were once not a people, but we are now unchange, unchangeably, absolutely the people of God. We had not obtained mercy, but we have now obtained mercy. So he's speaking to mostly the Gentiles. Those of us that don't, don't, that don't have the heritage of Israel, that don't have the heritage of the promises of God. All right? All my Gentiles say, hey, that's what the baby just did. <laughs> hey. All right? And God's speaking here through Peter to, to, to the Gentiles and saying, you too, you were once not the people of God. But here's the gospel. You weren't a people, but through Christ you are now the people of God. The church is the people of God. We are, like Israel, a treasure to the Lord our God. And notice this big idea that Peter stresses here in verse 9. That we may proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is who we are as a people. This is who we're called to be as soulless church in South Florida. Understand. What are you? You're a Christian. What does that make you? You're just like a goody-goody, two-shoes? You vote this way? Is that what it is? No. Scripture says, here, here's someone who belongs to God. They have been rescued from darkness. They were stuck in their sin. They were stuck in their condition, but God made a way where there was no way. He sent Jesus, who's the light of the world, into the world to take upon himself our darkness so that his light could fill our lives. And we who were once not the people of God, we have been called out of darkness. Did you know that? You know that actually the, the word church, ekklesia in Greek, ekklesia, literally means called out. Called out, chosen. Let me pull you out of that. Let me take you out. of. You're called out of that darkness and you're sent into the marvelous light, a light of life. That's Jesus. And in that light, like Israel, our job is to, Jesus says, be a city on a hill. To be a witness to the world around us. To exist visibly to display what God has done spiritually. And that's our calling as well, we're called to this. In fact, uh, Karl Barth, I think the way that he describes it 
uh, the theologian Karl Barth, he describes it so well. Here's what he says about the church. Here's what we're called to do. He says, the church exists to set up in the world a new sign. Here's what Christians are called to do. We're, we're called to set up in, a world, in the world a new sign which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner and which contradicts it in a way that is full of promise. You see that? It's both contradictory and inviting at the same time. That's a lot like what the nation of Israel was meant to be to the foreign nation. But let's ask this question this morning. Ready? Are we any different from Israel? Are we, as the people of God here in 2020 in Boca Raton, Florida, called out of darkness into light, to be a light to the surrounding nations, to live in such a way that is contradictory and inviting to the world around us. Are we any different? Have we wandered? Have we wandered away from the Lord our God? You know, this is not, when you read the Bible, this is not something that is just characteristic of Israel. The wandering nature thing. In fact, it's, it's, it's pretty funny in, in like a surprising way to see how messed up the early church is. Like we talk a lot about the early church. Like we got to go back to how things were at the early church. And it's like you don't mean Corinth, right? Like you read 1 Corinthians. You're like the early church, they weren't doing so hot. Read 1 Corinthians 5 like when your kids aren't around. It's like, what are they doing? Crazy. You see, like, caught up in, like, theological tangles and, and all sorts of just idols in the church and sin dominating the church. You have Jesus' vision. On this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then you read the book of 1 Corinthians, and you're like, something's not working. Just like Israel. We too have the tendency, we too have the proclivity to wander away from God. You ever felt that wandering happen? You know what I'm saying? It's like, um, it's like your car that needs its alignment adjusted. You know what I'm saying? So like for maybe two seconds, always 10 and 2, by the way. That's what you're going to hear here at Solus Church. Eyes on the road, no texting, 10 and 2. Okay? If I could, I would get the thing that divides me from my children in the back. I would drive much better, okay? Brittany's like, yeah, okay. Um, but you, know, you had that moment where, like, you have to take a hand off the wheel for a second, and all of a sudden it's like, whoa, three lanes. What just happened, okay? That, that veering, that alignment, and, and now a lot of the cars are, have been made for, <laughs> I think, for dudes who, like, don't drive as focused, and so now it starts beeping. You had that? Where it's like, beep, beep, beep. like, you're driving bad, all right? Get back in line. Um, and that's a lot like my spiritual life. It's, like, it's a lot like our tendency. It's the history of, of humanity. It's like we have this proclivity to just, listen, if you just leave your Christian walk to just passivity, you don't go in a straight line. Does anybody know this to be true yet? If you just go on idle and neutral, you go off course naturally. That's why scripture says we're sheep, right? He's not, the Bible's not like the church, the people of God, the panthers of Jesus, you know? And they just bolt straight, and they, it's like, no, we're like, eh. we just like, we have this proclivity to stray, this tendency to wander. I, I want you to see this. Uh, this is what Paul says in Galatians 1. Galatians, man, a, a region, Galatia, a church is planted, revival breaks out in this church. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Um, the gospel the power of the gospel trans is transforming individuals. What usually happens, the gospel transforms individuals. Those individuals exist in a, a community where the gospel is transforming them together. And then those people live with purpose in their city. And their actual city starts to become renewed and transformed. That's our vision uh, here at Solus. Come to welcome to Solus after service to learn more. Okay, um, But here in, in Galatia... This great revival's breaking out, and then suddenly, suddenly, wandering starts to happen. Did, did God really say that? I mean, come on. Did he really say, is that really, did Paul really mean that? Yeah, that's what Paul said, but what about Jesus? 
Okay, yeah, but is the gospel, I mean, okay, so we're, are we really justified by faith, you know? Apart, from, like fully apart from works or just like most works? And Paul says this to, to the Galatians in Galatians 1, 6. He says, I marvel, I'm marveling that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. It happened in the church then, it happened in Israel, it happened at the beginning of time. Again, this proclivity to wander away from the Lord our God. Israel did. They wandered from the Lord. Can you write these four things down? I, I don't have time to give you four points, but I'll give you them all at once. How's that? Does that work? Good. Okay. All right. Four things that we have a proclivity to wander from when it comes to God. Number one, the word of God. Number two, the way of God. Number three, the worship of God. And number four, the work of God. Four directions that we tend to naturally stray away from. You look at Israel, in fact, for homework. I want you to read Amos chapter 2. And I want you to read verses 4 all the way down to 16 there in Amos 2. Amos 2, 4 through 16. I want you to read through that. And in that section, what you see is you see Israel wandering away from all four of those things. And it doesn't go in that particular order all the time, but it, I definitely think there's something about starting with wandering away from God's truth and God's word. There's something about that. What God says to Israel about them wandering away from God's word and God's truth, which is what we mean, by the way, when we say the word, like God's word is true, let every man be a liar kind of a thing, right? Like God's word is not just true, it's the truth. That's what God had given Israel. And when you read Amos 2 and you, you read there in verse 4, it says there that they despised God's word. It's like, what? How do you go from being the people who have received the blessing of God's true word to despising it? It's like, how does that happen? Well, it usually happens progressively, doesn't it? It usually happens. It happens this way not just in our lives. It happens this way in the church. It, it's happened in large part to the American church where we take the gift of God's word and the way that we stray is we, we start, here's how it starts. We just, we don't take it away, but we decenter it. We use it for campaigns, especially, right? The ones about giving, let's use those verses. Good verses there, right? We, we, put, it to, we put it aside. We, we use it to get into our ideas and our hot topics. And, but it doesn't have the center stage that it deserves in our lives and in our church. If God's word is not center in the church, then Jesus is not at the center in the church. His word has to be there. And what happens is it usually starts where it just kind of gets decentered, not, not removed, but just other things come in. And, you know, it's just, well, I mean, preaching like 50 minutes long, that guy preaches? What about like a drama? A more like interpretive dance really speaks to me more than the Bible. Or what about like, what's like a, a book with like, what about some, more, more practical stuff? You know what I mean? Like what about like 10 ways to fix my unruly child, you know? And it's like, listen, by the way, the Bible will speak to those things, but scripture must have center stage. We're sanctified by his word, Jesus said. Not by dramas. We're sanctified by the word of God. It gets decentered. Here's what happens in all of our lives. We decenter God's word and then we start to, I don't know, maybe disengage with God's word. Like, okay. I know a lot of it. I'm not going to read it. And then we start to distance ourselves from God's word. And then when you've distanced yourself from God's word, whose word is ruling your life, your own or culture? So you begin to distrust God's word. Nah. Nah. And then from God's perspective, he says, you're despising my word. But like Israel, we're called to build and base our lives, our entire lives upon God's word. We wander from the word of God. We can wander from the way of God. The whole book of Amos, you'll read this, is about a people who have wandered so far from God's way of righteousness. And in both ways, in righteousness towards the Lord, in holiness, approving of things that God says are sin. And also, they've wandered away from God's righteousness in how they treat one another. Primary theme of the book of Amos is justice. In God's heart for the poor, God's heart for the oppressed, 
And at this point, it's not just that the people of God, like we know the people of God should labor to provide for the poor, and we should seek in our own lives to do justice, to do, to do right before God out of love for our neighbor. But it's so beyond that. Like it's not just that Israel's not doing justice, but they are doing injustice. They are appra- There's one verse where um, Amos says, you are trampling on the heads of the needy. He tells us there that people are trading people for silver. So just so far from the way of God, you move away from the word of God, you'll move away from the way of God. And you'll have your own way that you'll call Jesus, and it won't be the way of Jesus. And then it leads to them moving away from the worship of God. God is no longer the one that we give our whole hearts and lives to. We do give our lives to him, but not just him. And this is how idolatry usually creeps in. Um, I wander away from worshiping the one true God not by saying, uh, I don't really want to worship Jesus anymore. I think what I want to worship is my bank account. Like, I think that's going to be just a better savior. No, but usually what we do is we buy into the lie that they're compatible, that we can worship both, right? So I can worship Jesus on Sunday. I'll, do that. I'll go on Sunday. But Monday through Saturday, I'm going to invest in myself. I'm going to invest in my life. I'm not saying don't build wealth, okay? Influence the kingdom. Give to your local church and leave a, an inheritance for your children. Do that. I'm talking about idolatry. I'm talking about uh, if you spend more time checking the stock market than you do reading your Bible, something's off. Do you know what I mean? Like if you, kn- if you know more about the third string linebacker on the Miami Dolphins than you do the Apostle Paul, then you do the book of Galatians, like we've got to really acknowledge and evaluate our priorities. Like have we drifted away from God? Have we made other things more important? Good, by the way, those are good things. I'm not saying they're bad things, but good things usually make the best idols. It was John Calvin who said that as human beings, we are idol factories. We're very inventive with our idols. And we, we can make an idol out of anything, especially the blessings of God. Okay, so worship, they wandered away from worshiping the one true God. Uh, And lastly, they wandered away from the work of God, what God had done for them. Uh, What God had done for them in delivering them from Egypt had become a fleeting memory. Rather than the thing that God commanded them, you're you're to get, every week, the nation of Israel was reminded, and they even had practices built into their seasons and their calendars, get together and remember what God has done for you. See, we have our own version, don't we, where we come to a table and we see, the, we see the representation of the body and the blood of Jesus and we recenter ourselves upon the work of Jesus. Man, it's so easy. The reason why we have to remember that is because we forget. So I want to invite the worship team to come out and just allow us to have a moment of reflection. Um, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We we need to face that. We need to face that tendency and we need to identify where we're drifting. Is God's word, God's truth at the center of your life? Is it shaping who you are? Or is it something else? Is it lies? Is it half-truths? Is it the media Newsflash, the media is shaping you, okay? Stories, truths, headlines. Again, here's caveat, caveat, caveat. It's okay to watch the news, but is God's word shaping you and your view of the world? What about the way of God? Where do you find yourself today? Have you found yourself, have you found yourself astray? Are you living in the way of sin and unrighteousness? Have you been giving more worship and attention to other things in a way that's greater than God. Like it's the thing in your life that if it were to be removed, your whole life would lose its meaning. Like God has to have that primary place of worship. And then lastly, have you taken, and this is maybe the source of it, have you taken your eyes off what Jesus has done for you? In redeeming your and my life? see, it's because Jesus did that. You know, it's interesting. Jesus is is a greater Amos, isn't he? Amos was a burden-bearing shepherd. 
Isn't Jesus that? Jesus is our burden bearer, isn't he? Jesus is the one who carried the weight of our sin physically with that cross. And then spiritually upon his own life, he took the weight, the burden of your and my wandering upon himself. To be a better shepherd to us than Amos could ever be. Amos points us to Jesus. It's Jesus in John chapter 10. And he says, I am the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. And I know my sheep and I'm known by my own. Listen, maybe right now you feel forgotten, okay? You, you, feel, you feel like you've wandered to the point of no return. Jesus says, I'm your shepherd. I'm a good shepherd. I've given my life for you and I know you. I see you. You haven't wandered out of my sight like a child at the grocery store or something. I've been there. You, you haven't wandered to the point of becoming so lost that I can't rescue you. Have you forgotten that I have come to seek and to save those who are lost? Have you forgotten that my heart is for the wanderer? My power and my grace is to bring the wanderer close and to bring that person close to fill them with the, the meaning and to give them the purpose they were created for. That's what the cross of Jesus shows us. Now, when you read the book of Amos, what's so beautiful, over and over again, you get this reminder from God, most displayed there in the person of Jesus. But despite, okay, despite Israel's wandering, when you get to chapter 5, God says, seek me and you'll live. Seek me, he says, and you'll live. If you're wandering from the Lord right now, no intention to return. And if you're under the sound of my voice and you're still alive, guess what? You can seek the Lord and you can live. You can come back, not because you're going to do enough good things to pay God back, but because Jesus paid it all for you. And he is that good shepherd that sees you and is calling, him, calling you to himself, always giving that invitation to come home, to come back to center. And that's not just true for the prodigal wanderer. Listen, that's true for all of us. As you look at your life and you think about, man, where in my life, God, have I wandered from you? Uh, let's sing this ancient hymn that declares this tendency, ultimately with the hope that God is going to bring us back. God is a God of grace and mercy. So if you have wandered, let's take a moment to return to the Lord. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.